0: we welcome you to the Tabernacle Podcast, brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit our website, tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. You can find other sermons like this one on Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. It is our prayer that God has used this message to be an encouragement to your heart. I'd like to ask you, if you would please, to turn to the book of Judges. And we'll start in Judges chapter 2. I'll just point out a couple of verses to have you look at with me as I spend a few moments giving a little bit of an introduction. Most of us may be familiar with the book of Judges. Quite honestly, it's a very dark book, very difficult time in the life of the Israelites and generations of them. But there are some bright spots along the way, and we're going to take a look at one of those bright spots that the Lord gives and shows and through that I'm hoping the Lord will challenge us in our relationship with Him and how this applies to us I'm also hoping that He'll encourage us this morning. God has great things for every one of us He has a purpose a design for each of our lives even in the midst of whatever you're in whether you be in a Uh, a deep and dark hole and there are all of us at some point that face things like that or maybe in your soul as you came walking into the uh, church building this morning, maybe a song like what we just heard was playing in your mind and all of us are somewhere in between those. But God has something for us this morning and I want you to pray with me that God will speak to us into our specific need this morning. And so before I begin, let's pray again together and ask God to help us. And would you ask the Lord to speak to you? Father, we're grateful for the Word and its power. Oh, I pray that you would use it in our lives, in our minds. And Father, that we would be willing for you to speak to us, to not only encourage and strengthen, but to challenge and to help. And Lord, I pray that you'd help each of us as individuals as a result of Truth from you and your work in us will continue moving forward in our relationship and service for you. Please meet with us and help, I pray, this message to accomplish exactly what you want it to accomplish. In Jesus' name we pray. it. Amen. God gave the Israelites the promised land a wonderful inheritance once they left the bondage, the 400-year Time span that they spent much of that in bondage to the Egyptians. It was their inheritance into Canaan as they left Egypt. He also said that he would remove all of the wicked inhabitants from the land and he wanted them all to be gone. And that was as judgment uh, for hundreds of years of rejection of himself. With God's guidance, the Israelites were to drive out all of them, all of the inhabitants of the land. They weren't to make any leagues with them at all, to join up with them in any of those things. And you may remember as a result of being in Egypt for 400 years and many of those years, most of those years, under bondage and under the influence of multiple gods and false religions and all of their ways, Obviously, the Lord didn't want the inhabitants of the land staying there with His people to influence them with their false religion and their wicked and very immoral religious practices, uh, even so much as offering their own children uh, to false gods on altars. And so they were being judged, and God's people were taking the land as an inheritance. The Israelites, however, disobeyed They didn't remove the people of the land. They didn't drive them out, but rather brought them under tribute. Now, you you say, well, that's maybe the next best thing, and that's exactly what they thought, that it was the next best thing. But here's the problem. They They wanted the fruit and the riches of the inhabitants of the land as opposed to the blessings that God had promised them. They thought their plan was better. There have been many times where I thought my plan was better. And God lovingly, and yet as a father, chastened me, reminded me that His plan is always best. The Israelites, the Bible says in Judges 2, verse 7, if you're there, that the Israelites served the Lord, Judges 2, verse 7, Israelites served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. Joshua and those of Joshua's generation saw the works of God and they saw some amazing things. They saw the care and provision of God as his children left Egypt and, and the ten miraculous plagues that broke the bondage of Egypt to allow the children of Israel to leave. He saw him, uh, saw God uh, split the Red Sea and to dry up the land so that they could walk across and then yet use that same instance to destroy the enemy that tried to follow him into it provided for them uh, even in the wilderness and even as they wandered for 40 years because of their disobedience continued to bless and to provide for them and then the next generation under the leadership of Joshua led the people in and they saw another uh, miraculous uh, m- uh, thing take place as God opened up the Jordan River and like he did with the Red Sea, opened it up and the children of Israel walked across miraculously and miraculously took the city of Jericho and began to conquer the land that God had given them but they didn't drive them all out and they served the Lord but they only served him during the days of Joshua and all of those who had seen the works of God and those were the works uh, that, that they had the opportunity to share with the next generation. Of course when they all died Israel went off the deep end and They not only fell deep, but they fell quick. The Bible says in verse number 10 of that same chapter, And also, all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, speaking of Joshua's generation and those who saw the works of the Lord, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which He had done for Israel. How in the world could that be? I mean, we're still talking about the miraculous works of God even today thousands of years later. How could that be? And the only thing that I can bring to mind concerning the question, why didn't the next generation know the Lord and His works? The only conclusion that I can come to, and I'm sure there may be others, but the only conclusion that I think I can come to is that they weren't taught. It wasn't a part of their lives. But they were to surround everything in their lives With God. Isn't that what God expects of the believer today? That we live and we do what we do because Christ gave his life for us, that we give our lives for him. Not physically as martyrs, but living our lives as a sacrifice of obedience to him. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of all of the mercy that God has shown us, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. That's what happened with this generation. When they left the inhabitants there, they were so influenced by the false religion, and it was so easy because that's what generation after generation had experienced in Egypt. But when they died, the generation who knew God The next generation didn't know Him. They weren't taught it. It wasn't a part of their lives. And the book of Judges begins, and it marks a 300-year period in the history of God's people of mostly dark days, debauchery, distress. And we see a cycle of generation after generation of God's people, Israelites doing evil, Then God judging them as a father chastens his child. Then Israel crying out to God and a faithful God hearing and answering and helping and delivering them. And it is in those moments where God delivered them as a result of their repentance and crying out to God that we see some bright spots in the book of Judges. And there are many judges in in this entire book book but there's one that we're going to focus on this morning you see when the lord graciously delivered his people he used these judges these governors to fight for and to deliver them from oppression but again as soon as the judge died just like joshua and that generation died they forsook the lord again and again and again And again, chapter 4 is an example of this cycle and we'll see that and we'll take some time to make some application to it. But there's some wonderful lessons for us to learn also from two main characters in chapter number 4, Barak and Deborah. And then we'll look at some of the verses in chapter 5 which is Deborah's and Barak's psalm or song of praise because of what God did. And it also gives a little more insight as some of the details that we see in chapter number four. And so we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see a repeated loop, the cycle. We're also going to see the rich lessons. And then we're going to see the relevant likeness. And so first of all this morning, the repeated loop. I want you to notice in verses one through three of chapter four with me, please. Verses one through three. I want you to see, first of all, the chastening of the Lord. Verse number one says, and the children of Israel, what's the next word? Again. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud, that was the previous judge, when Ehud was dead. So they forsook the Lord, and now as a a father, he chastens his children. Verse two, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. "...that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Herosheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, they sin, chastisement comes, they cry unto the Lord." The children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900, speaking of Sisera, he had 900 chariots of iron, and 20 years, 20 years, he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. You see, Israel forsook God and began to worship false gods. So the Bible says the Lord sold them into the hand of the Canaanites. This is the chastening. At this point, Israel had been under the control of the Canaanite king Jabin and the commander of his army, Sisera, for 20 years. The Canaanites were a strong people at that time. They had 900 chariots of iron, which was a great technological advantage over the children of Israel. They had no chariots of iron. And the Bible says they mightily oppressed Israel and Sisera was at the forefront of the oppression. He was cruel, he was immoral, he was violent. Chapter 5 gives us a little more insight to this very situation in verse 6 and 7. It says, The highways were unoccupied, the roads that they used to travel in. And the travelers walked through byways, literally through trails, they were so afraid of, of bandits, bandits, they were so fearful of being robbed or, or like the man going down to Jericho, being taken and, and beaten nearly to death and everything taken from. They were so afraid that they had to find other ways, hidden trails to be able to travel. The villages ceased. Why? Because these villages were unwalled. They were unprotected and and it became impossible for them to live there. So they deserted all of that, left everything that they had other than what they could take with them and left and fled these places. The Israelites were captives in their own inheritance. And sometimes as believers, we can get to a place where we're captive within the inheritance that Jesus Christ has given us through salvation. If you know the Lord and His blessings, and this is just a, a warning that I want to put out there, but if you and I know the Lord and His blessings, but we forsake Him, He, like a loving Father still today, will chasten us to open our eyes and to draw us back to Himself because the safest place and the most blessed place is in His presence and being right with Him. Now look, I've been, ch- I've been chastened by the Lord. He's been very merciful in that chastening. So of the Lord's mercies that were not consumed. His compassion fails not. But as a holy God and our Father, he does correct us. We see the chastening. But secondly, we see the challenge, verses four through ten. And in these verses, we're introduced to Deborah. Look in verse four and five. And Deborah, a prophetess, The wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah. That's a very special place. Between Ramah and Bethel. Keep that in mind. Bethel in Mount Ephraim and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So we're introduced to Deborah as a prophetess. What is a prophetess? Well, she knew the Lord. She knew God. She was used To give God's word, the definition of prophetess is inspired woman. God spoke through her, especially in giving direction to Barak. And we'll see that in just a moment. She was a prophetess. She's also a wife, married to Lapidoth. Vital. And I think it's important that God placed it there. And she's also a judge. She governed the people. Uh, Verse uh, 5 tells us, that uh, read, Look at verse 5 again. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So they came to her in this place in Bethel, the palm tree. She dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah. Some type of structure, some type of significant place. Why was it significant? Well, perhaps this is a connection to her namesake, another Deborah. In the Bible. You remember back in Abraham's day that his son, the son of promise, Isaac, uh, the servant of Abraham, was sent to find a wife for Isaac, and they found Rebekah. God led him to Rebekah, and Rebekah's father sent her away with the servant of Abraham to bring to Isaac for marriage, and sent along with her a nurse, a second mom. What was her name? Deborah. The Bible says about this Deborah, Rebecca's Deborah, in Genesis 35 8. But Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died many years after this, after the marriage of Rebecca and Isaac, of course. But Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak. And the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. This must have been some significant place because now Judge's Deborah is counseling and judging and governing from this specific place. Gives us a picture of the importance of Rebecca's Deborah and her position and value to Isaac and Rebecca, especially, but also to the prophetess and wife and judge. Deborah that we read in chapter number four. There also seems to be a certain priority that the Lord placed on the description of Deborah. She's a prophetess. God first in her life. By the way, for every believer, that's our first priority, is God. God in our lives is our first priority. But then he says wife. Marriage is the second priority. And of course, that implies family as well. And then judge her public service, if you will. And I've got to say, sometimes I get the priorities that God gives me as a, uh, as a Christian and as a man and as a, as a husband and a father. Sometimes I can get those priorities out of whack. And things don't go as smoothly as, as God intends for them to when we get things out of priority. Sometimes wives and mothers can get things out of priority as well. Sometimes our children become more of a priority than our marriage. But one of the things that, one of the best things that I've ever learned in, in my life, and one of the best things that a couple can do for their children is keep their marriage a priority. Children need to see the example. Children need to understand the good and the and the bad, the difficult and and, and the blessings and the victories. And we get to model that for them so that they one day can enjoy the priority that God puts upon marriage. And so I think there's some priorities, that, that some order of priorities that God gives us in introducing Deborah. But next, in verse number 6, we meet Barak. Verse 6 tells us that he's the son of Abinoam the, uh, from Kadesh Naphtali, and apparently he's a military leader. And here's the challenge, verse 6 and 7. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded? Now let me just stop and say, this sounds like Barak already knew that this is what God wanted. But here's Deborah saying, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded? Saying, and here's God speaking from the prophetess Deborah, go and draw toward Mount Tabor. And take with thee 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun. And I, God says, will draw unto thee to the river Kishon Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude. And I will deliver him into thine hand. The prophetess Deborah tells, uh, reminds Barak of what God expects of him. And he says, this oppressor for the last 20 years, I want you to go gather 10,000 men and I want you to draw to Mount Tabor. And I, God said, am going to draw Sisera and all of his troops and all 900 of these chariots to the river Kishon, which is close to Mount Tabor. And there I'm going to deliver them into your hands. That's a tall order. And Barak seems to be fearful. He seems to be insecure and lack confidence, but he's willing if Deborah goes with him. Look in verse number 8. Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. He was very fearful. And yet he was willing to disobey God unless Deborah went. Barak's going to learn some lessons. He needed, however, encouragement. And that's exactly what Deborah provided for him. Encouragement. This is what the Lord said. And this is what God said he's going to do. Now, Barak, this is your job and you can do it. She encouraged him. You know, everybody needs encouragement. Everybody needs encouragement. And if you don't think you need encouragement, then go encourage somebody else. All of us need encouragement. And Barak needed encouragement. I don't think he was a bad man. I don't think he was an evil man. He was a fearful man and an insecure man. And Deborah encouraged him to do what God had told him to do. And I think also that that Deborah's presence with Barak may be some type of confirmation that God had ordained this and and, and would show that to those 10,000 troops and and confirm to them that yes, Deborah's here, she's the prophetess, she's our judge, and and God is involved in this. Interestingly, as we uh, may see Barak as, as, as fearful and lacking confidence, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32, He is commended in that chapter uh, of the hall of faith, as some call it. He's commended as being a man of faith. Well, What does that tell us? Because here we see him fearful and insecure and, and, and Deborah reminding him of what God had already said and that I'm not going unless you go with me. But he did it. And we're going to find out that he was victorious and so were his troops. You know, even though Deborah encouraged him, Barak still had to trust. And Barak still had to put his faith in what God said he would do, and he did, and God commends him for it. But we know it was because of the encouragement of Deborah. Listen, folks, it's amazing what the encouragement from our lips and our actions to others can do for other people. What encouragement can mean for somebody else. Deborah goes with Barak, and he gets his 10,000 men, and he heads toward Mount Tabor in verses 9 and 10. It says, And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor. For the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men at his feet, and Deborah went up with him. Well, that shows the courage of Deborah, doesn't it? A courageous woman, a warrior. So we see the chastening. We see the challenge now that is given, and then we get into this conflict in verses 11 through 22. By the way, how in the world would God draw Sisera and his mighty army to the Kishon River? How's he going to draw them? Well, how does God do everything and anything? He does it because he's in control. And look in verses 11 through 13. We're introduced to another man, Heber. Heber the Kenite. Here's how he draws the enemy. Heber the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent unto the plain of Zaanaim, which is by Kadesh. And they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him from Heresheth of the Gentiles unto the river of Kishon. Something had happened with Haber and the rest of the family of the Kenites, and they severed and parted ways, and they were at peace with Jabin. Look in verse number 17, look ahead a little bit. In verse number 17 of chapter 4, it says, Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. So, what did Heber do being at peace? He says, look, I'm going to go to the the king or I'm going to go to the commander, Sisera, and I'm going to let him know there are 10,000 troops moving toward you, toward Mount Tabor. Well, what are they naturally going to do? He loads up all 900 chariots and all of the men from that area, all of his soldiers, and they make their way to the Kishon River. God leads in every step of this. Verses 14 through 17, we see uh, Sisera's army. Look in verse 14. Deborah said unto Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? Just an encourager saying, Barak, this is what God has said for you to do. You've taken this step. You've gathered the men. You've been obedient. I am here with you. Now this is the time, up. God has delivered. Boy, what encouragement that was to Him. And how important it is for us to tell our, our young people and, and remind one another, this is what God wants and God's going to help you and you can do this if you'll just follow Him and trust. Verse 15, And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his host with the edge of the sword before Barak, So that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. He's retreating by himself. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Heresheth of the Gentiles. And all the host, all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword and there was not a man left. Howbeit Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Sisera's army is destroyed. He has fled. How did it happen? The Lord disconfitted. The the, the word means confused or troubled Sisera. How did he do it? Evidently, from chapter 5, God used a storm. He used rain and lightning and thunder, maybe even heavenly hosts, to, to flood the river plain and to disable those iron chariots of Sisera. They were bogged down in, and they were useless. The victory was the Lord's and the victory was supernatural. Just turn over quickly with me to chapter 5 and look in verse number 4. Another description of this battle. And we're going to see that Deborah is describing God as a general coming out and marching on the enemy himself. Verse 4. Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir... When thou marchedest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. The clouds also dropped water. Look in verse number 20. They fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. Storm, wind, rain, hail, whatever. Heavenly hosts, perhaps. Verse 21, the river of Kishon swept them away. It was flooded. The chariots are bogged down. They can do nothing. It's an even playing field. Well, in their eyes, but the Lord was discomfitting them. That ancient river, the river Kishon, oh, my soul, thou hast trodden down strength. Then were the horse hooves broken by the means of the prancings, the prancings of their mighty ones. God humbled them. May I say to you this morning that whenever you and I are in a place Where we're penitent to God and we're trusting Him. God will move heaven and earth to help His people. He is not held back by circumstances. He is not limited by your limits. He is He is not weak and just angry and and, and waiting for you to do it all yourself. He is available to us. He wants to help us. And every single time the people of God turn to him, God answered with deliverance. And as you and I turn to him, and we don't do the plan that we think is best, but we follow God's plan, we turn to him for help. Listen, it doesn't matter what trouble, what bondage, what hurt, God will move heaven and earth to deliver you. Verses 18 through 22, we see Jael, the wife of Heber. Jael went out to meet, and this is a, a, a grim incident. Jael went out of, to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my Lord, turn in to me, fear not. And when he had turned in unto her into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. And he said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be when any man doth come and inquire of thee and say, Is there any man here that thou shalt say no? Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent and took a hammer in her hand and went softly unto him and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground for he was fast asleep and weary so he died and behold as Barak pursued Sisera Jael came out to meet him and said unto him come and I will show thee the man whom thou seekest and when he came into her tent behold Sisera lay dead and the nail was in his temples it was a gruesome sight and Sisera had been an evil and violent and torturous commander over the Israelites for 20 years. But Jael fulfills Deborah's prophecy from verse number 9 of chapter 4, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. God knew what was going to happen, of course. Heber and Jael were neither Israelites nor Canaanites. They weren't descendants of Jabin or Sisera. Neither were they descendants of Israel or of Abraham. They were neutral. Now listen very carefully. But nobody can stay neutral forever. Nobody can stay neutral forever. And friend, when it comes to Jesus, no one can remain neutral. Either He is who He says He is, Or he's not. Either he's a fake and a phony and a liar or he is wonderful. He is counselor. He is mighty God. He is everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Savior of the world. And no human being upon this earth can remain neutral as to who Jesus is. And He doesn't want you to remain neutral. He wants you to come to Him. That's the whole purpose that Jesus came. Listen, dear friend, we're sinners and we know it. Nobody has to tell us that. And it doesn't matter what sinner or who is better than the other because all of us fall under the same judgment as being sinners. And that judgment from our holy God is separation from Him in a a place called hell. But God doesn't want us to go to hell. Hell wasn't created for you and I. it's created for the devil and his angels who rebelled against the God they worshipped and saw. And were in His presence. But God offers mercy to His creation. He offers mercy to you. And so Jesus Christ, God the Son, born of a virgin robed in flesh identified with mankind, touched with the feelings of our infirmities, tempted like we are, but without sin. And he lived upon this earth and he lived as man, but he also identified as God as he taught and as he preached in power of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He taught and he preached and he performed miracles. He healed blinded eyes and made the lame to walk and those who couldn't speak, he loosed their tongues. He did miracles of stopping the waves and the wind. He even let a man, Peter, walk on water with him. He turned water to wine. Jesus identified as God in flesh and yet he died having taken my sin and yours and the judgment of all sin upon himself. Jesus paid it all. He died. He was buried. And on the third day, he raised from the dead. He came alive to prove that he is God. He is not just a prophet. He's not just a good man. He's not just another powerful leader. He is God in flesh and has power over sin and death and the grave. And he arose from the dead to offer to us eternal life. What do we have to do? Well, we've got to live perfect, and we've got to read our Bibles every day and pray, and we've got to never do wrong again. No, sorry. It doesn't happen in this flesh. We have to acknowledge, God, I'm a sinner, and I'm lost, and I know it. But I believe you died in my place. I believe you suffered my judgment. I believe that. And I believe you arose from the grave. And so today, I ask you to be my Savior. Come into my life, forgive my my sins, save me from hell, give me a home in heaven. And you know what God promises to do? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall, not maybe, not might, shall be saved. And through the Spirit of God, we are born again into the family of God. And once you're born again into the family of God, my Bible teaches me that you can't be unborn. We belong to Him. The Spirit of God is sealed within us. He leads us, He teaches us, He changes us. And and the idea is to change us into the, uh, to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Why? So others can see Jesus in us and hear about what He did for them. And save them. But you can't remain neutral. You can't say, well, one day I'm, I will. I know Jesus is good and God is good and church and all that stuff is good. But, but I also like to do my plan and my way and my things. Listen, friend, you can't stay neutral forever. Neutral means rejection, which means you pay your judgment, not applied to Jesus. And for those of you that may not that do not know Christ as Savior, I want to encourage you. Don't stay neutral. Give your life to Christ. It is the best decision you will ever make in your life. Jael chose wisely and disposed of the man that had tormented and mightily oppressed God's people for 20 years. She no longer remained neutral and the conflict was over. So we've seen the chastening, the challenge, the conflict, and just briefly notice number four, the conquest. Verses 23 and 24 of chapter 4. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. Who gets the glory for it? Who gets the glory for it? God. So God subdued. Verse 24. And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. God subdued the king and the Canaanites before Israel, Israel once again prospered and prevailed. Chapter 5, verse 31 says, And the land had rest 40 years. Isn't that a blessing? 40 years of rest. But it's also disappointing because it's only 40 years of rest. It was only 40 years, unfortunately. Why? Because they went through the cycle a few more times as a nation. That's the repeated loop. Cycle after cycle, return to God. Now that everything's okay, everything's going fine, money's in the bank, house is getting paid for, everybody's healthy, all is good. I'm going to enjoy life. And we begin to, to tend away from the things of God, from His Word, from His church, from His people, from time in prayer, and before we know it, We're worshiping the idol of self and comfort and our own personal desires. And God, like a loving father, chastens us and reminds us, oh yeah, I need you, God, and I've got to have you. Please help me. And God, as faithful as he is, always comes to the rescue and helps us. A cycle. The repeated loop. But I want you to notice number two, the rich lessons. The rich lessons. Number one. And I hope you're writing things down. If, if not, I think it'll be on YouTube. <laughs> Number one, God often calls people to step out in faith to attempt the unexpected. To attempt the unexpected. Barak didn't seem to want or know or understand, but we see Barak after the encouragement of Deborah to go forward and to trust God. He did it. And God did something greater than any of them expected. This powerful, militant nation, this cruel nation with 900 chariots and all God had to do was make it rain. God often calls people to step out in faith to attempt the unexpected. Think of Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Peter and Paul. Number two, quickly. God often uses unlikely people and sources to accomplish His plans. It's funny, you read through Judges and you see uh, different tools that were used, a jawbone of a donkey, an a, 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 a ox goad. Look, God doesn't need what we have. He just needs us to obey Him with what we have. I love Psalm 113. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in earth. God has to humble himself just to look upon the heavens and earth. And yet he did so much more than look upon. He became us, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. He came to us. He became man. And listen to what this God does. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust. We talk about the unlikely. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the needy out of the dunghill that he may set him with princes even with the princes of his people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. God often uses unlikely people to accomplish His plans. Do you realize that Deborah was the only female judge in those 300 years? She was the only female judge in those 300 years. And yet, the influence of mothers and wives throughout the book of Judges is prominent. It's amazing, actually the impact and the influence of wives and mothers and the ladies throughout the the scriptures. Number three, God sometimes requires great risk and effort on our behalf as part of His divine plan. God sometimes requires great risk and effort on our behalf as part of His divine plan. Sometimes the things that God commands and leads us to do doesn't always make sense to us, but it would behoove us to be obedient and let God reveal what He's doing. We don't always understand. And in the case of Deborah and Barak, they risked their lives in war while Jael took in in a runaway fugitive and risked her life to end his and to help free Israel from oppression. But it was at great risk. We've been told and, and, and encouraged to be praying about the next step as a church. But let me ask you, what is your next step as an individual? What is my next step as a, member of the Tabernacle Baptist Church. What is your next step? It's going to involve some risk and it's going to involve some effort. But God asks no less and He does so much more. Number four, ultimately this account reveals that God is in control and present with us in anything He calls or commands us to do. He's present with us. He tells us to go in all the world and preach the gospel. And what does He say? Lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world. I will go with you. I am with you. And no matter what you face, if you're a believer, God is with you and He'll continue to be with you in what He expects of you. What is God speaking to you about from the Scriptures? What is God working in your life about? I ask myself the question, and will I be obedient to that call? to that command, to what, I, to, to what I understand that he's having me to do. The rich lessons. And then lastly, number three, the relevant likeness. The relevant likeness. Look in chapter 5 and verse number 7, and this is where the title of the message comes from. Chapter 5, verse 7. Speaking of the terrible conditions of the people of Israel under this 20-year bondage, Deborah says, the inhabitants of the villages ceased. They ceased in Israel until that I, Deborah, arose, that I arose a mother in Israel. A mother in Israel. Listen carefully. The Holy Spirit who inspired the Bible that we hold in our hands, who gave the words to the writers to write and preserved it for us, The Holy Spirit could have inspired the writer to use any word to describe the true influence and impact and nature of Deborah. The Holy Spirit could have said uh, and and led Deborah to say and the writer to write, uh, Deborah, that I arose a prophetess in Israel. But Israel didn't need only a prophetess at this time. He could have said that I arose a judge, a governor in Israel. But God knew that's not the only thing that the, that the nation of Israel needed, not a judge. He could have said that I arose a warrior in Israel. But God knew that that's not all that, that Israel needed. God knew at that time they needed a mother in Israel. What does that say about a mother? And the power, the influence, the impact, the importance, the value Of a mother. I don't make a habit of looking up words that I think I know the definition to. But I looked up the word mother in Hebrew. Ancient Hebrew texts, they sometimes used pictographs to give a general understanding of a word. There's two pictographs for mother. And when you put those two pictographs together, the symbols mean binding liquid. Mother means binding liquid. It's an attribute. Actually, it means strong binding liquid. Or we might call it glue. Mothers are the glue that encircles and holds together. Israel needed a mother to encircle and hold them together. Don't you agree that our nation needs Godly mothers, not perfect mothers, mothers. they don't make such a thing. Well, they did in my house. <laughs> but Godly mothers, genuine mothers. I believe our church needs mothers. I believe our neighborhoods, I'm talking about the ones you live in, the one I live in, needs godly mothers. Our own homes need these kind of mothers. And there are mothers in this room that take on more responsibility, single moms, than than what you should have to. But you do. And you know who gives you the strength to do it? God does. You know who will continue to help you to do it? God will. You know, the Bible never really tells us if Deborah had children. She may. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. But whether or not she did or didn't, She was still a mother to others. She was a mother in Israel. Be a mother. We've got bus riders come to our, and they have moms. And and many of them are are wonderful people. While they're here, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing? And if I could do it, I would. But since I'm not a mother, I can't. Let's be a mother to these kids, these young people. I've got several mothers in this room. I've got my biological mother and she is the primo mother. But you know what? I'm thankful for the others of you that encourage and challenge me. It motivates me. It, sometimes I walk away like, oh, oh, she's right. And it helps me. Be a lot of things. Be a prophetess. Be a warrior. Being a mother is all of that. Deborah, a mother. She had the right priorities. God first, husband and family next, public service. She helped make a faithless man become valiant with her encouragement. She was courageous to go to battle with Barak. She was a warrior. She was an encourager. She was trusted. Oh, listen to this. She was compassionate. Look at chapter 5, verse 28 through 30. Just real quickly, I got to show you this. Only a compassion of a mother would think this way after all that's been done for those 20 years. Here is the mother of the enemy who has done so much. And Deborah takes time, the Spirit of God leading, to think of this mother who's now without her son. You talk about compassion. Verse 28, the mother of Sisera looked out a window and cried through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the wheels of his chariots? You know why she thought about this? She thought about where she could be. She thought about this woman and, 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 and the loss of her son. And though it was at the hand of God that these things took place and that Israel was free from oppression, and though there are many enemies of the church and many enemies of God today, doesn't mean that they still don't need compassion. And this is the type of compassion that it seems only a mother can give. She was compassionate. I end with this. The value and influence of mothers is measureless. May God help you, mothers. May God help all of us to be the right influence. And when we don't get it right, and I've not gotten it right many times, not as a mother but as a father, but when we don't get it right... Let's make sure that we make it known that we didn't get it right and apologize and get up and try again. There are some mothers in here, there are some of us in this room that mothers have been warriors and battling the enemy for your sake for a long, long time. And you're here, humanly speaking, perhaps because of a warrior of a mother who prayed for you, who taught you, who corrected you, who helped you, who reminded you of who you are in Christ. And we ought to be grateful. We ought to be grateful. Thank God for the value and the influence of mothers. Thank you for listening. We pray that God has used his word to speak to you today. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit us online at tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. There, you'll find additional information about our church, opportunities to partner with us financially, as well as other resources that we hope can be a help to you. May God bless you, and thank you once again for listening.